Welcome to the podcast that will teach you how to successfully invest in and build steady streams of passive income from the highly lucrative niche of mobile home park investing. Veteran real estate investors Kevin Bupp and Charles Dehart from Mobile Home Park Academy will personally share with you the valuable lessons they've learned along their journey as mobile home park investors so that you too can learn how to build massive cash flow and huge profits from this extremely lucrative niche. So without further ado, let's welcome your hosts for today's show, Kevin Bupp and Charles Dehart. Welcome, guys and gals, to the Mobile Home Park Investing Weekly Podcast, where we'll provide all the information that you need to know to successfully locate, negotiate, close on, and make huge profits from the lucrative niche of mobile home park investing. I'm your host, Kevin Buppin, and in today's show, we're going to be speaking with DJ Pendleton, who is the Executive Director of the Texas Manufactured Housing Association. Now, a little bit about DJ. He holds an MS in accounting from Texas A&M University and a JD from Baylor University. He's a licensed attorney in Texas specializing in real estate and finance. And so I'm super excited to get onto the show with DJ here today. But before we do, here's a quick word from our show sponsor, Sunrise Capital Investors. Hey guys, Kevin Bupp here with Sunrise Capital Investors. As you are hopefully already well aware, if you've been a listener for any period of time, my goal has always been to provide you with as much value as I possibly can through my two podcasts, Real Estate Investing for Cashflow and the Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast. As our audience continues to grow, literally, we've been downloaded millions of times by folks in over 125 countries. I've had thousands of people reach out looking to get involved in our niche. And that's the phenomenal niche of mobile home park investing. For those that don't know, I've been a full-time real estate investor for nearly 20 years now, and I've personally invested in and have owned apartment complexes, various commercial properties, hundreds of single-family rentals, and I've interviewed some of the most successful investors in just about every other asset class, and I've arrived at this one very simple conclusion. Mobile home parks are hands down the best investment I've found to date. Why? They provide investors with the best risk-adjusted returns out of any other real estate sector that I've seen. Investing in real estate can get complicated, and I really want to simplify this process for you. If you're someone who wants to diversify away from the uncertainty of Wall Street and allocate a percentage of your real estate portfolio to mobile home parks, but maybe you don't have the time nor the inclination to personally locate good deals yourself, then our team will do it for you. At Sunrise Capital Investors, our team specializes in the acquisitions and management of undervalued and highly profitable mobile home parks. And we are now providing accredited investors with an opportunity to participate directly alongside our team in our up-and-coming deals. And let me say this, I believe that we are hands down the best in our space at sourcing highly profitable off-market deals. That's really what makes us unique in this niche and as investment managers. As stewards of your capital, we truly are aligned with our investors. We've structured our investment fund so that we as a company are incentivized in the same way the investor is, which is through the performance of the investment itself. In addition, we want to make sure that we not only make money for our investors, but that they understand how it's being made. That's why we provide our accredited partners with a private monthly podcast that walks them through the detailed updates on how their investment is performing. And we're very transparent, providing with the good, the bad, and the ugly at times. And so if you'd like to learn more about the partnership opportunities with our team here at Sunrise, please go visit sunrisecapitalinvestors.com and click on the investors link to get signed up. It's absolutely free and you'll get placed on the priority list of when new opportunities come along. 
Also, feel free to call us at 833-CASHFLOW without the O. Again, that's 833-CASHFLOW without the O. And one of our investor relations team members will help you schedule an appointment to speak with one of our managing principals. If you have questions, go ahead and schedule a call and let's get on the phone and talk. And with that, guys, I'd like to leave with one last thought. From the time that I wake up in the morning to the time that I lay my head down the rest of the evening, my number one priority with everything I do, whether it be recording this podcast, working for our investors, helping each of you reach your investment goals, to providing a great experience to each of our residents who reside in our communities, is to add huge amounts of value to everyone that I come in contact with. Now, with that being said, I look forward to the opportunity of bringing value to you through Sunrise and through this podcast. Thank you for your time. Now, let's go ahead and get back to the show. All right. Now, without further ado, I'd like to welcome DJ Pendleton to the show. DJ, how are you doing today? Good, good. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining us here and uh, from the, the, the big old state of Texas, right? That's right. That's All right. Yeah, I'm, here, Austin, I'm, here in, I'm here in Austin. Yeah, right here in the middle of Texas. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. So, you know, DJ, I was I, I took some time to do read up on your profile. You've been in this industry quite a number of years. You look like a young guy still. So I'm guessing you got in this industry, which is you, you look kind of young still. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's aging. The, yeah. the great coming, nor attributed probably to my kids, some occupational aging too. But yeah, I've been doing it. I'm um, going on my 13th year here at TMHA. So kind of okay. an interesting gig. But, uh, tell, us, but tell us a little bit about your background and also what you do there at the Texas Manufactured Housing Association. Sure. Yeah, just a quick background. You know, yeah, I went to school, came out there for a brief time, worked uh, in the accounting field, uh, worked for a uh, completely unknown accounting firm called Arthur Anderson. Uh, I was I was there in the Dallas office doing real estate tax returns during Enron. That experience kind of prompted not nothing wrong with them. They were involved in it, a great group of people, and they ended up moving over to KPMG. But I took that and kind of took it as a sign in the experience and decided I was going to go to law school. So I went to law school, came out, worked a little bit of a time prior to, and then after I got out at the Travis County Attorney's Office uh, in their civil division. So I was doing super exciting, sexy things like reviewing software licensing agreements agreements and toll road construction projects and <laughs> formulating hospital district boards. So and then from that, I was basically looking around. I'm from Austin, born and raised here. So I'm one of those kind of rare unicorns in Austin, mm-hmm. but uh, was looking around and kind of through happenstance, stumbled into TMHA that was kind of in a point of transition and went in for a big grueling interview for about with the three executive members and for, you know, four or five hours and they brought me on. And then yeah, it was like I said, it was point of transition. And so I came on initially as general counsel deputy and then within about, uh, I guess they put a transition plan and I think like seven months, eight months later, they turned it over and gave it to me. So I've been doing it ever since. Okay. Okay. Very exciting. So, and, and tell us a little bit about the history of the association there. And I, I know that, you know, countrywide there's, I don't know how many associations there are. You could probably actually tell me that there's probably no, numerous states that do not have manufactured housing associations. And there's a number of them that do that aren't very active. Texas is one of those that is incredibly active. You guys give the industry a lot of support. And so tell us a little bit about the history of, of your association and you know, also what it is exactly that you guys do there. Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, real quickly, actually, believe it or not, uh, the real the association, this association goes all the way back to 1952. Wow. And it was originally formed by park owners. And it was, you know, a mobile po- mobile home park owner, basically, association back then. It's evolved uh, over the years. So, and to your point, you know, some, some states don't have, some states have two. They'll have basically a association that represents kind of the factory and retail side and then one that focuses exclusively on, on communities. Mm-hmm. We do both. We have it all. So, we, we represent, like say, every 
every facet of manufactured housing, do some modular housing too, but mostly manufactured housing. So there's everybody from the factories to the retail, the street retailers, the install setup guys, the people that finance them, the people that insure them. And then we obviously, uh, our park owners are a huge membership class that we have through about 390 community community properties that are members in Texas, which we're trying to grow that market share. There's We think that there's well over 2,500 at least communities in Texas. Yeah. So we're trying to grow that. But, uh, and what we do primarily, I mean, what we do, what we are, we are the state, the Texas state-based lobby arm for the association mm-hmm. or for the industry. So we try to defeat bad laws, pass good laws that benefit the industry. It's, it's And we do that at a local or the state level here in Austin, uh, talking to the state politicians, the senators and, and House members. We've done some stuff and gotten involved in various different degrees over the years and some of the federal issues, whether it was when Dodd-Frank came about, some mm-hmm. of the stuff on disaster recovery, things like that. But that's that's mostly turned over to the national, which we participate in. But our primary focus is Texas. Okay. Okay. Fantastic. And then on a direct owner-operator support level, what type of immediate support does like someone that joins your association? As you mentioned, there's 390 some odd operators that are currently members. You know, approximately there's 2,500 communities in the state of Texas or operators in the state of Texas. So you've got a piece of that market share. It should be a lot larger. I feel like it should be a lot larger <laughs> in a lot of states. No, I'm, I'm dead serious. I feel like you know that's. I guess the question goes. I know that it's the right thing to do. We're a member of all the associations in the different states that we own, minus the few states that really aren't all that active. And I, and I know the benefit. And so I'm kind of asking you. You know, in addition to on a state level, uh, you know, you representing the industry, on on a more direct uh, owner operator level, how do you guys support? the little guys even, uh, the guys that own the one or two parks. Yeah. Which we do have quite a few of those as well, uh, as long as well as the big kind of, uh, big REITs and things like that. So, I mean, kind of a multifaceted answer here. I mean, we've got some operational day-to-day stuff that we offer various different sets of forms, traditional forms. If folks are looking for everything from lease leases or model leases to mm-hmm. notices and all those other types of things. So we have, we have a, a bunch of those, several of them actually are, we have translated into Spanish. We have the note and security agreement for those that are interested in do, that we vetted through several different attorneys and things like that, that we've worked on and collaborated with for those that are potentially in the um, owner finance side of things. Hmm. We offer a bunch of different educational resources. As a matter of fact, this whole last year, we kind of kind of embarked on this. We kind of te- deemed it in- internally as like our own internal like community wiki. But basically, it's <laughs> like these community resources that are broken down by topic. We've got uh, more, I mean, almost two dozen of them of your of your normal heavy heavy hitters. What needs to be in the lease? What needs to be in the contract? How to do evictions? Hmm. Everything from submetering. We got stuff in there about when they bounce checks. To I'm trying to think of some of the other ones. Uh, limited English uh, proficiency. We've got a whole bunch of different topics on there that kind of trying to condense down in a smaller isolated forms rather than giving some big, huge, long comprehensive that they can go in there and you can utilize. So we use those a lot now. Uh, They've been a pretty big member benefit. We get a lot of traction and stuff out of the forms. We have educational events that we either put on or, or co-put on, which we just got done with our big annual convention that we had the Four Seasons in Dallas, where we had about 17 speakers, many wow. of them very focused on the community, both the community manager day-to-day operation, but also the investor side. We team up with some folks that are doing a tech, what they call Texco in February that'll be out of the Woodlands. It's been around for a couple of years. It's specifically focused on community operators or owners. Mm-hmm. So you know we'll put on those various different events. And then lastly, I'll say that Again, going back to what I said before, primarily our role is, is, is legislative advocacy. So when the legislature's in, we're tracking, I re- we read every single bill. 
We track all of the ones that could impact the industry. We notify the industry about them. We seek their input. We've gathered input over the interim to try to put together our own legislative agendas, keep everybody up to speed on what those are, try to run those bills that we want passed through the process, obviously defeat the ones that we don't, Mm -hmm. educate everybody about that. And then I don't want to oversell this because I want to admit our own limitations here, but one (laughs) of the areas we've been trying to get better at, it's just very hard to find a good vendor resource. And I've got another one that I'm actually potentially going to try to transfer to. We've, we've been trying to, to the best that we can track when local cities, basically local governments, counties, or cities enact or propose to enact anything related to MH and then get that information out to those members in the, in the impacted areas, surrounding areas. It's just very difficult in Texas. There's no one big mandated repository or database where all of the thousands and thousands of cities have to post their notices. So, I mean, it's literally trying to find a vendor that is going through and and looking at all the various different types of notices that they may or may not post online and, you know, doing control find and searching these things. So we spend a, it's not for lack of, of effort or expense. We've spent a bunch of money and we would continue to because if we could get it right, I mean, it would be a valuable resource. And when we do get notified and we can get local engagement and people to show up that might, might otherwise not know. Because, I mean, literally, Kevin, I mean, the, the, the statutes right now require cities to post notice basically in the classified section of the local newspaper or to put the notice on the outside of the courthouse glass door, (laughs) like like three days in advance. Who reads the newspaper anymore? Yeah, exactly. It's it's really hard to to, to try to do that. So we got some things that we'd love to see as, as things evolve in time to see if we could help that out. They're not there yet. So in the meantime, we're trying to do our very best, but there is, there is an element of local notice, but again, I don't want to oversell it because because we do unfortunately don't catch everything. So what would you what advice would you give that 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 smaller operator that's you know within any given county in order to stay up to speed with any changes that might be coming down the pike? I mean, literally go to the courthouse once, once a month and look on their window and see if they have something posted. <laughs> I mean, it, it can be check the you know find out what the uh, certified or the the uh, newspaper of record. I mean, that's what it's defined okay, as yeah. the newspaper of record and look for those notices. The other thing would be to the extent that they can, sometimes the, they're not as well received, but you know, try to go down and get involved at the local level proactively before there's a problem, before somebody's yeah. gunning, gunning you down or trying to, uh, you know, to try to know your council members or at least know the, the city staff, the clerks and the various different things like that. See if maybe they have some sort of email listserv. Some of them have and mm-hmm. don't have, or if they've got a place that they post online. And then if they've got, if they've got some sort of more regimented, some of the larger cities will have a little bit more regimented periodic posting. So you can look for that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, those would be some suggestions, but yeah, I uh, fully admit it's antiquated. It is, uh, yeah. you know, for, for those that advocate for more transparency, that there's, there's a lot to go when it comes to local governments in Texas. So, so you've been doing this 13 years now. I know that there's probably been a lot of threats and attempted changes within our industry that would hurt us owners and operators and the vendors and, and providers to this industry in a big way. And so talk to me, maybe just pick you know, the ones that come top to mind of you that you guys have been integral in and either repressing or completely abolishing as, as far as major changes on a state level uh, in Texas? I'll go with the horror story first before my, t- <laughs> before my time, admittedly, but it, it, it still, the scars are still there and still uh, fresh enough in everyone's memory that we're very keenly aware in Texas in particular about 
how things in the industry can get catastrophic if you're not if you're asleep at the switch and, and bad things happen at the legislative mm-hmm. level. Back in 2001, there was a bill that basically killed the ability to secure a finance lien on a chattel home. They had to, the only way you could secure a lien is if it was tied to real property. Well, 90% of the sales in Texas and almost all in all of them in communities are chattel. The industry, it, the industry came, fell off a cliff. It was coupled with that and our own, own kind of subprime bubble that that mm-hmm. burst. But I mean, we went from forty-eight thousand new home shipments in you know nineteen ninety-eight to down to like six thousand you know a few wow. years later. It was it was devastating. I mean, and the of course everybody so that everybody knows everybody that was up the the other le- lesson for those people in my position is like. When you when that stuff happens, everybody at the association gets fired. So, like there was so so there was a reckoning at that level and yeah. a, a rebuilding process. The association was able to mobilize, come back, essentially reverse that out two years later. A lot of damage had already been done, but that gives us it makes us keenly aware of how important it is that we do not miss things and that we do participate. Now, as well, far what, as, what was the original thought process behind that that change? There was a. A lot of these people are dead now, so I guess I can maybe speak about it uh, more openly. But essentially, there was a political motivation out of a very large landowner uh, uh, who had yeah. a direct connection with multiple then state legislators that had some property, a lot, extensive amount of property up and around the DFW metro area that got that kicked off. And it was it was it was one of those that it was amended on the floor at the very end. Things in the association weren't weren't going all that well at the time, and uh, anyway, uh, basically, our the association's own bill got turned on it and stripped out all the good, brought in all this bad, and off it went before people could could stop it. So, but so anyway, that that's that's the life lesson we know and kind of we walk with and, and keep with for forever. I'll tell you one that more a little bit more relevant, a little more timely. Mm-hmm. We, like a lot of other states, have seen a lot of communities in cities in, in, or annexed or in cities who they basically have this you move, you lose mentality, where if you move the home out, you're, we're not going to allow you yeah. to replace it, place that lot. The way this normally manifests is, is that, you know, you've grandfathered in, which is, you know, you're a, you're a nonconforming use. Mm-hmm. And there's a general abandonment provision. If you move something out of a nonconforming use, you can't go back and use it. And they apply it in these isolated lot levels in order to basically punch holes, economic holes in the viability of a community with the hopes of the community just shuts down. And so uh, there's several states that have laws like this, Florida, Wisconsin, there's a bunch, there's several states. If, you, if you're in other states, you have listeners in other states that might not have something on the books. There are at least three, I think that I know, maybe four, four state level Supreme Court decisions that go in favor of the community owner saying, no, 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 you got to treat the entire property, not individual lots as the nonconforming, mm-hmm. you got the ability to come in. But anyway, we went in and we advocated for a bill, SB 1248, last session. So Texas is every odd year. So this was in 2015, or yeah, 20, 2017, excuse me. And essentially we said, listen, you have the ability to replace a home if you move it out. And, and the other thing that we did, we put in there and said, and it's preserved to the original lot size or density that it was when it was first mm. grandfathered in. Because what we ran into as well is we had some cities saying, oh, okay, yeah, you can bring in a new home. But now you got to abide by the new setback. setback and, oh, yeah. and oh, by the way, the new setback is 35 feet house to house. <laughs> but, it, but in the site built neighborhood, it was 12 feet. That was literally the example in Harker Heights, Texas, that we used and we took to the legislature and said, this isn't right. This is a bad, poorly veiled excuse for discriminating against us. And the Harker Heights people were there and testified against the bill and were asked, like, 
how can you more or less, how can you explain this discrepancy? And the guy just kind of shrugged his shoulders and was like, he couldn't. So, uh, <laughs> so we, we were fortunate. That was the hardest bill we've, we've passed in a very long time. The cities, as you can imagine, hated it. There were all sorts of shenanigans, especially right up into the end with amendments and things like that, that we were trying to fend off. It was very dicey at one point, but fortunately we got it through, got it signed. It's in the law. So that's a, that, that's, that's a more immediate one on when we kind of went into it more proactively, more aggressively trying to preserve the investment expectation, I guess, that a property owner, community owner has in Texas. It's unfortunate. I mean, do you, do you see, are there any municipalities that are accepting of manufactured housing communities? Believe it or not. Well, so I would normally say, and probably if you, if we had done this interview a couple months ago, I'd probably say, you know, unfortunately not really. We've seen some that are more, more neutral that aren't really opposed or against, uh, in particular in areas where there's a tremendous a need for housing supply. Uh, a lot of this is oil driven. So you get out in West Texas or when the Eagle Ford was going in South Texas, they just needed supply. They needed housing. I mean, you know, La Quinta in Midland is go- when it's going for $480 a night, they need more supply. So you kind of sometimes get more indifferent, but a lot of times, uh, not really. I mean, we see a lot of ordinances about you got to put up 10 foot wall masonry fences around them. You got to do all this <laughs> other sort of stuff that they wouldn't, they'd never, they'd never in a million years even contemplate putting into a you know, site built subdivision or anything else like that. Now, the one exception I'll say, and, and we'll see as to how it goes, the city of Austin has, there's a city council member in Austin who, and there's been a lot of media and kind of other political issues that are drumming up on, on basically closures. And this is more related to kind of property values and repurposing property for redevelopment places like hot markets like Austin, you'll have community owners that say, listen, I got to sell this land because this guy wants to build this giant, you know, high rise, you know, and so, you know, I'm going to sell. And so there's a city council member and the, and uh, talking about basically changing a lot of the non-conforming zoning use and bringing it back in and to properly zone it within the construct of Austin's land planning as MH in the effort to preserve it and preserve affordable housing. Now we don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's a, so it's like one of those things is like, we're politically agnostic. So people think that I'm, you know, we're in Texas, we all go Republican. We work with Republicans. We work with Democrats. <laughs> uh, we work with anybody that's, that, 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 that's, that's in favor of MH and those that aren't, we try to change their hearts and minds. Well, yeah. one time. but you know, even this kind of self-proclaimed socialist Democrat in Austin is our friend because he, you know, he's, he's advocating wants to, he wants to bring, you know, manufactured home communities and mobile home parks into kind of into their fold. Now, that also means, would have been the one place I would have never said that was the chance in heck that wouldn't happen. <laughs> well, and like the, the, I'll, I'll end it with an ellipsis rather than a period in the sense that we'll, <laughs> because, you know, what the motivation I think is, is that he's trying to make it so that it's much more difficult for these parks to be redeveloped so that they can't, so that even when the big, you know, truckfuls of money come in from these other uh, developers that want to build the big high rises and stuff, it puts up those roadblocks. Now, if you've got an existing community a community in Austin, I mean, I'm not, I didn't do, I, I did economics, but I'm not an expert in economics, but those values have just increased. I mean, oh, yeah. cause you've got, you've got this prime primo spot that potentially has got even additional protections against it. Now the limitation there is, is it might not be able to be spun off to, to sold down the line for anything other than a park, uh, or you might have, you know, additional hurdles to go through. But, uh, anyway, that's, that's, that's one, that's one that I'll give you. That's a little bit, and there's an article, there's a couple of news articles. If you want to, if you want to put it in your notes or something for your visitors, I can link to it and you can see what I'm talking about. 
Are there any uh, rent control ordinances in any of the different counties throughout Texas? Is that a concern? Yeah, I thought it was so interesting you brought that up. That was one that was going to be my intermediate step, but I jumped it. So in rent yeah. control, oh, go ahead. I was going to say in Austin, I, 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 I thought I heard through the grapevine at some point, there was some chatter about that. So, so first and foremost, on a state level, rent control is prohibited. It's illegal okay. in Texas. Uh, there's a specific Good. statute that basically talks about it. It's kind of, it's under the, it's kind of couched it. The only way that you can do rent control is with a governor declared disaster through basically the governor's office. And it's, and it's to basically prevent price gouging. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, rent control is prohibited in in Texas. Now, that being said, we have started to hear, rum- similar to what you said, I've, I've heard other kind of rumblings, grumblings of local cities not the, trying to do the equivalent of rent control. They don't call it that. They call, they'll call it something like uh, rent stabilization or, <laughs> or uh, you know, something to that effect that's not rent control. We haven't seen, you know, those, those actually be, you know, you know, deployed and then, you know, whether or not they would, they would survive certainly any kind of, you know, legal challenge or scrutiny under that state law superseding it, you know, would be a, we'd have to see that fight come and see how it kind of turned out. But as of right now, we have heard some, some, some rumblings. I go and talk to other states and go out to West once a year to hear my counterparts in California, Oregon, Washington, whatever, because I know that what starts out there is going to come to a local (laughs) city near me about two or three years later. (laughs) So anyway, but and I know rent control is a huge issue out there. So yeah, so we're fortunate to have that one already on the books. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. How about any, any age ordinances? I know this is one challenge uh, and this is where the, the state association really came through for us. And this was in North Carolina. We purchased a community there, the local town that it was in, it was in a little incorporated town. They had an ordinance. They, they, they disliked mobile home parks, just like a lot of towns and municipalities do. They disliked mobile home parks. They kind of attributed mobile home parks to all the problems of this entire town, not taking any of the blame themselves. It was the mobile home parks problem. That, in any event, this community had been built back in the uh, the late seventies, early eighties. You know, all the homes in here were post HUD homes. A majority of them were early eighties to mid eighties, and then there was maybe about twenty percent that were you know two thousand five or newer. And so, in their mind. Older homes always look like junk. Uh, this community actually was a fairly nice community, but as you know, these things get rusty roofs on them. They get rusty siding, and just deferred maintenance will take its toll on anything, whether it's five years old or fifty years old, right? And right. Uh, this community was neglected. We came and spent a lot of money cleaning it up. There was about forty vacant sites in this community. Uh, it was it was actually zone MH. I already had the infrastructure in place. They had homes on them at one point in time during the channel crisis. A lot of these homes were repoed and pulled out of there, and they were never replaced. And in any event, our second phase of our turnaround was to bring homes in both new and used. And we ran into a roadblock. They had a 10-year ordinance based on the age of the home. The home that were brought in could not be any older than 10 years. And, and in their mind, this was going to eliminate any of those old rusty siding, rusty roof trailers that were you know, basically the downfall of mobile home parks. And it was quite interesting. We, we, I knew that that wasn't the case. I knew that old homes didn't have to you know, be the, um, you know, the eyesore that a lot of them were when we took that community over. And so I went in and met with the, uh, the actual mayor and his town council. And essentially, there was a community that we owned at that same time that was in, it was in Atlanta. And there happened to be two homes in that community. I forget the manufacturer, but they were 2,005 model homes. And granted, this was 2015. So this was three years ago. But the home that we owned in Atlanta had two 2,005 model homes in it. And both of them, it pitched truth, but they, I, I don't know 
I can't recall who the manufacturer is, but they had metal siding and metal roofs. It must have been probably right around the last year or two where any manufacturer probably still used metal, metal. metal siding or you know, metal on metal of that, that vintage. Uh, in any event, as you and I both know, there's also plenty of manufacturers back in the mid-90s that were doing vinyl siding shingle roofs, right? So I went into this meeting with the town council and the mayor and said, I just I want to be very clear to make sure we're all on the same page. You guys are essentially looking for homes that look like this. And I showed them a picture of the vinyl siding shingle roof, then show them the year of it, years in the back, you know, 1995 I had written. And you guys want to avoid homes that look like this <laughs> and put the other picture in front of them with the 2005 model home out of one of our communities. And they're like, Absolutely. We do not like that look. Everything coming in moving forward, it's got to be within 10 years, just like that one there. And uh, essentially flip the pages over. And, and, and that wasn't really good enough. They weren't very happy about that approach. But we, we went into about a year-long legal battle to get that essentially you know, abolished and, and removed right. the town ordinance. But the attorney there for the state association supported us and was integral in the success of actually getting that that ordinance repealed. Ultimately, we were not able to bring any used homes in over that period of time, but proven we were proven successful. Um, and and I really, I don't think a, a local attorney without that knowledge or without the industry knowledge would have been able to uh, support us as good as uh, as this legal counsel did from the state association. So that that was uh, well worth the membership. Obviously, we had other legal fees associated with it, but it was well worth being a member. And so I'm kind of putting that out there to everyone that's listening, that if you own a community here now today, Definitely explore your local associate, your state association. Some states aren't all that active. Uh, a lot are. Texas, if you're if you're in Texas, if you're buying communities in Texas, be sure to uh, to join. I mean, it's such a nominal fee, and the support that you get for the most part behind the scenes is uh, it's invaluable. So, with that, you were going to tell another story, and I interrupted you. So. No, no, I appreciate I appreciate the I appreciate the recommendation. Yeah, I mean, just I thought I'd just echo that. I mean, we don't. We don't push too hard. We think we're pretty proactive uh, and you know offer a value, but we want people to come and, and view that for themselves objectively. Mm-hmm. And, and once once we get them, a lot of times they stick around. But I was going to say is unfortunately we have not fixed the age problem on a state level. There are cities in Texas that have the same type of deal, eight year, ten year minimums. We've mm-hmm. been involved in some of that sort of stuff. You know when they're looking at those uh, types of deals about rather than doing like a floating a floating year, trying to tie it to, uh, specifically in time, like, you know, basically in 1997, I think it was, in, you know, 96 and then resulted in 97, there were a bunch of advances within the HUD code. That's like when, for example, when they came and started coming up with the wind zone levels and things like that. So yeah. as, as things get older, we've advocated or helped people advocate at the local level, like don't put a 10-year float on it, but tie yeah. it to anything older than 97 or something to that effect. And here's the justification why, because of the, you know, basically what we're trying to get at is, you know, that they're, that they're the, the safety and soundness and what, uh, social, you know, welfare issue is off the table. And so, but you still run into those problems. Potentially, we've got some ideas that we don't know how, uh, we've got some wish list items as to on a go forward basis for things like how we could go and try to, to try to put some additional state laws that would, that would, that would benefit us in those areas. Mm-hmm. It might, might be kind of a securitist route of some of the things we're dealing with, but, but essentially one would, would be to, to try to take the, the position that, you know, listen, the moment a local government has mandated a certain age restriction for anyone who has a home that's over that age or approaching that age, they've essentially just destroyed the equity that they have in that house. Yeah, that's true. I, I mean, and, 
you know, whatever the whatever the then you know persuasive analogy would be. I mean, I, I live in Austin. I bought a house built in 1963. I mean, if the city of Austin came in and said nobody could buy a house in Austin city limits that was older than 10 years, they'd kill the value of my house. Wow, what a great uh, argument. You know, or or if you want, if people don't like it and they don't like the site built in the neighborhood, no, it's so different because you know that's the way they think. It's like okay. Let's t- let's say you know let, let's take it let's take it in the chattel space of it. All right, let's say you own an eight-year-old car, and all of a sudden they came and they say you can no longer drive on these city streets <laughs> in this car. All right, try to resell your car. You know, it's like and so yeah. you kill the equity. And so we're doing that and doing it in a way like in Texas we have a provision where like if you're going to do any kind of zoning change that might impact the surrounding property values, you got to give everybody within 500 feet a notice before you do it. So they can come to, they can come participate and they can come say, listen, we don't like, or we do like what you're going to do. But what, unfortunately what we see so often time and again in the MH space is, you know, often these rooms, these people that are hatching up these plans, most of the time, and I'm not trying to disparage all of the city council members, most of the time, the genesis of all of this stuff comes out of the unelected planning and zoning, you know, uh, yeah. uh, volunteers. And those are the people that are a lot of times the most well-off, most affluent people in a community, even if it's a small, low-income rural community there's still those folks and they're they're not representing the others and so they start there they get passed to the council members and then before anybody knows it here these things are and they've and they've done these things that have impacted our industry whether it's zoning them out whether it's putting age restrictions on them whether it's limiting us to stuff mm-hmm. another bad story i got is we we saw a zoning change in the city called in, in aransas pass we tracked it was after the fact unfortunately we're ha- basically half the part of the city was always permissible for site built or mh I had a zoning change that went through. They said, okay, now it's only going to be site build, except for this one little spot, this one little dot. And they're like, what is that? Why, why did they do that? There's a huge swath of this territory. It took us a little bit to dig around. And we, what we figured out, that one little spot was, was all the area immediately surrounding the, the only solid waste treatment facility <laughs> for the city. Gosh. So oh it's like, gosh. so, you know, I get on my soapbox and get fired up really quick when people start talking about, you know, depreciation and these things and this values and comparing these things. It's like, well, if you have actively and proactively sent to, uh, you know, sought out to make policy that you're going to isolate these types of communities and you're going to put them in the least desirable places sure. in a city, like show me anything that survives that kind of treatment. So anyway, we see a lot of that, work on a lot of that, or continue to work on a lot of that. We, uh, I, on the on the positive note, if you've got it, folks out there that are in Texas, I will say a couple of things on the replacement. Uh, it hasn't been lit- litigated as to what it what might do if there is an um, overlap contest. Like if you guys did in North Carolina, if you want to take this to the court now with existing law, I will say there are two pieces of legislation or two laws on the books. One is uh, the ability to replace a home. So if a homeowner has an absolute right to replace their home with a newer home, so long as it's the same size or bigger, not new, a newer home. Mm -hmm. And that can be limited by cities if they make an ordinance to, to one replacement. But at least you have that. And then this other part of the, of this, the bill that I talked about, Senate Bill 1248, that we passed on the ability to preserve the lot size and ability to replace homes within communities, that specifically says that you're allowed to replace the homes with a new or used uh, home. That was a point of debate uh, that we knew was we were going to get hit if we didn't just advocate for new, but we wanted to include used. We went to our sponsor, the, to, the, to the bill sponsor and said, we understand if you want to take out used because it's more of a lightning rod contentious deal. Yeah. We want it in there because there's an affordable, there's an increased affordability level if you allow used. And she, to her credit, God bless her, she was like, no, I want it in. And sure enough, we got okay. hit. We got hit on it. 
She defended it. It stayed in there. It's on the books now. So the two bright spots, but they're by far not a silver bullet. And I don't have a good solid case law where somebody went after a 10-year-old ordinance or 10-year mm. limit and said, well, what about this? And I want to replace it. And this state law should preempt this and how the, they would adjudicate that. We don't have anything yet on that on the books. Okay. But, uh, anyway. But as far as replacement and, and actually uh, maintaining that same grandfathered zoning or I guess unconforming use, did it have to be on the same size footprint if you brought a new home in? On the yes. So did. if you took out a twelve by sixty, you couldn't bring in a fourteen by seventy on that same without having to then probably conform to the current setback code. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Basically, okay. It, pres- it preserved the setbacks that you had when it was originally grandfathered. So it became there. That is not a. That's not an end all be all. I, I admit, in the sense that if you wanted to bring in a larger home, but then overstep that that setback, yeah. or we've actually been getting. I don't know if you're you guys and, and some of your you know, listeners, we've been getting the opposite question now, especially as homes and things get smaller, not necessarily on the tiny home side, but smaller to increase Mm -hmm. density, to increase the number of lots, can they go smaller? And it doesn't do Uh that either. It just kind of freezes in time what you had. And again, it was more of a defensive protection measure. So they couldn't come in there and arbitrarily say, now you've got to have a country mile between two houses. (laughs) And because the effect of that is we know it's going to shrink your community to a fifth its size. And we know Mm -hmm. when we do that, you are now the bad guy because you've got to shut this thing down and kick all these people out. And us, the city, we have clean hand. Mm -hmm. So that was that was the purpose of it. So there are limits of it, though. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. Uh, I want to make sure I respect your time, DJ. And, uh, there's definitely something else I wanted to cover here before we wrap it up for the day. And that's that's hurricanes. You know, you and I briefly talked about this a little bit before we started recording here today. And I know that, that Houston and uh, the coastal areas of Texas, you know, got devastated last year by Hurricane Harvey. And so I'd love to get a sense from you as to, you know, what that meant for the state, you know, what kind of support on the association level you guys offered to the, you know, the different park operators and the industry as a whole that were affected by this. And so, you know, this is uh, one of those tornadoes and hurricanes, right? I mean, those two, they're like the the nemesis of of mobile home parks, right? For whatever reason, that is... uh, Seems that those things, those those natural disasters, are actually attracted to our communities for whatever reason. I'm not sure why, but in right. any event, talk to me about how you guys made it through and, and any of the lasting effects that Harvey had. Yeah, so we're still definitely very involved in Harvey, uh, especially on all the permanent recovery stuff with the disaster funds that are coming down. Still, the recovery efforts. You know, I will say maybe start off. You know, on the good news side, I talked to a lot of our community owners in those impacted areas. There's a lot of there are a lot of communities in that Harris County impacted areas on all those all those impacted areas, and fortunately. By and large, the mass majority of them survived the, the storm, the, mm-hmm. which was primarily a flooding event, flooding damage event, very well. A couple of examples were that I spoke with one of our kind of the largest engineering company that's that focuses on on manufactured homes. You know, the guy that runs, he's a professional engineer, he runs his company, and he went down with his whole crew of his guys, and they went and looked at all the ones that they knew uh, that they had installed, because he said, you know, you do the math, you do the theory, you do the materials, you test this, you do whatever. He's like, but you don't ever have like a real live fire event until you have something like this. Mm-hmm. And he was just thrilled. I mean, he was giddy, as giddy as a professional engineer could be when you <laughs> talk to him about how well everything that they had done had performed. On the community side, we had multiple reports, especially from some of our large, our largest community members who have a lot of properties in those areas. And again, because it was a flooding event and because the homes are naturally elevated, you know, three, three and a half feet, the water would come up. They'd have skirting and things like that that they'd have to wash away. But by and large, as far as the homes themselves, the assets, the water level not got, never got above the base flood level. 
and with that they they sustained almost no damage you know for the mm-hmm. home so that was incredibly encouraging for a lot now we had we did have some other communities we had some that had serious flooding events you know eight nine ten feet of water that, that ballooned out of a river there's an example here in Lagrange where an, like an entire community was lost one of the things we've been aware of and watching very carefully we've seen some isolated instances of this things we go in and try to help those investors those owners that have those properties with their various different kind of support and arguments but when we see uh, communities that are lost or we see you know even manufactured homes that are lost the ability for those owners to come and bring in new homes and replace those homes and and basically rebuild their lives there, obviously within reason, so long as they're not mm-hmm. within floodplains and things like that. But just as you would in the multi-million dollar neighborhood in, in downtown Houston, sure. they have the same ability to come in and be treated the same way. But we did we have had seen some opportunistic moves that we think you know by cities that have said, well, this thing just got all washed away. Boy, we've been wanting to get rid of that thing for forever. <laughs> Now we're just not going to let it come back in. Yeah, and and made life really difficult on a lot of people. Not just the not just the property owner, but all their all their the residents. residents. Yeah, absolutely. Who, who they all wanted to come back. I mean, a lot of a lot of these, as you guys know, I mean, a lot of these prime community spaces, they're very socially in, intertwined. There, mm-hmm. there's a lot of oh, there's there's a lot of communities we have that have you know multi generational and and families that all live within these spaces and there's a, a lot of sense of community and people just want to come and return back to those yeah. lives just like anybody else would. If you Absolutely. Want to yeah. It's, it's their neighborhood. Yeah. And so uh, when people throw up roadblocks like that thinking, aha, this is our, this is our time. We're going to get rid of that park and magically we're going to have, you know, we're going to have, they're going to, the, the, the site builders are going to come in and build us $400,000 site built and our tax base is going to shoot through the roof and it's going to be great. You know, it's like yeah. we have, we have those challenges. I mean, and, and I want to be respectful of your time, but I'll just throw out there, you know, the stuff that makes me pull my hair out, the, the hairline and the gray, you know, we do see stuff. <laughs> we had an issue in city Odessa. It's still going on. They had a, it's on YouTube. I can survive the thing and the link of, they had a city council member. They got one council member out there who he is going on and on about, and he charges the city manager with going out to find out how much money, tax money they're losing for all of these areas that they have manufactured homes compared to site built. Because we're just losing all of this tax money that we could have, we could otherwise be collecting if you know magically in this area, all these homes were replaced by four hundred thousand dollars site built homes. And he charges this person. This is an ongoing effort. There's going to be whatever he charges these folks with. Like you need to go forth and find you know find out what this disparity is and how much money we're losing. Now he never talks oh about homesteads or people that have tax rates that are frozen over sixty five and all right. the money they're losing there. And then as as insidious as it got, it, it, it on that instance. They at that you know similar meeting they passed additional regulations, local ordinances that were going to require more extensive porches and with covers and steps and a very a bunch of big landings and other things for specifically for manufactured homes in the city of Odessa. So they're layering on this, these additional expenses to their best and single form of unsubsidized affordable housing that exists. Meanwhile, they're targeting them to basically give them justification for elimination later because they don't bring in enough tax revenue, not to mention what they're going to do with all the people that live there. And then you will love this. And I had to, to tell this story because like, it just doesn't get any best worse than this. In the <laughs> Same meeting in the exact same meeting. Fifteen minutes after they're talking about, they're about talking about these parks and increasing all these these porches and everything. The same city council in the same meeting approves a seventy three thousand dollar consulting contract for a consultant to come in and help them with what their workforce affordable housing shortage. 
Unbelievable. <laughs> This stuff happens. So uh, if you want to know like the craziness of government and what, you know, drives me nuts, like, uh, but it's also part of my job. It's that. So, uh, yeah. Well, thank you for your service. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, so It's busy, but you know, the good news is, is I'll say, uh, maybe because if we're wrapping up here on a kind of a happy note and my 13 going on 13 years doing this, I mean, the industry right now could not be, you know, thriving anymore, more vibrant, more interest, a lot of outside interest and investment coming in, mm-hmm. still flooding into the space, a lot of capital coming into the space, more institutional investors coming into the space. You've got, you've got interest from you know, the GSEs on financing, looking at us with Fannie and Freddie on putting together some programs that potentially over time that might grow. You've got outside money coming in. Mm-hmm. We've got backlogs at all of our factories for the first time in several decades. Texas opened up a brand new factory in, w- in Waco, Texas, a brand new from ground up a brand new factory member. So we're seeing that going. Shipments are going nuts. Community owners and their vacancies. I mean, they're they're filling these things up. Some of them are actually building brand new from scratch communities. Not a lot, but we used to see none. Now we're seeing more and we're seeing a lot of expansion. Expansions. I was going to ask you about expansion. Tons of them, right? Tons of those. People buying adjacent properties, tying them in and doing expansion projects. So you're not seeing seeing pushback on a a city or county level on those expansion projects? It all, it all depends on where you're at. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. They see some that just, that just throw up a whole bunch of hurdles and people end yeah. up walking away. You've got some cities that are, that are very anti-MH. I know mm-hmm. there was a struggle in like the city of Kilgore where they really went after a guy that was trying to sell his park and adversely impacted him on that. You know, the, uh, but then you'll see some other ones that are, that are much more accepting, including some of the larger ones. I mean, I know I have a, I have a board member, executive board member who did almost a hundred space expansion in a park he had in Harris County, well, in the city of Houston. Now you had to pay the permits and you had to pay all the stuff. You spent sure. a bunch of money at it. You know, I mean, these are, it costs a lot of money to, to get lots ready these days to do it. But, you know, over enough time, his business decision was this was going to make money and do it. You know, I'll, I'll tell you the one that, that's breaking, that's still under process, trying to go through permits and things, breaking ground. Again, it's here in Austin. They got zoning approval to build wow. a brand new park here in Austin. It did not come easy. I mean, he, uh, the owner, a landowner that wanted to do this development and uh, probably a lot of folks know, know, know him in, in y'all space and industry, but he had to, he had to do all the things you might think you'd have to do to get the city of Austin to sign off on a zoning thing. So, I mean, he's got, he's got rainwater collection. He's got a tree orchard. He's got communal <laughs> gardens. He's got playground space. He's got all sorts of other stuff that's, that's embedded in there that he needed to get there. But once he got there and he had the affordable housing you know, presence and pitch and said, this is what we're going to bring in. We're going to bring in nice stuff. We're going to be whatever. Here are some of the other examples of stuff we've done other places. He got his zoning. That's exciting. Yeah, it goes from the impossible to the hard to the, yeah, as long as you pay your permits, we don't care. <laughs> so, yeah, wow. Is that, I'm assuming that's not in the city limits of Austin. That's out. It is. In the count. It is, is it really? It is. Yeah, wow. It is. It is, yeah. Wow. So, yeah. And, that, and that encompasses approximately how many acres? I, just generally speaking, I th- how many? I think it was like, uh, it was quite, oh man, I think it how was. How many lots, you know, just. Oh, it's going to be a big size. I think, it, I think it eventually is uh, all phased out. I'm going to, don't make a lot of me. I can, I can find out and get back. But I think all phased out. I mean, it was going to be like a 400 place plus park, 400, 500. Wow. Uh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So, yeah. Very positive things happening. In yeah, there. there you go. I love so, it. I love it. <laughs> I love it. 
Well, fantastic. Well, DJ, this has been a lot of fun. I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day and again, appreciate your service and everything you do for the, the state of Texas and the industry as a whole. Hopefully one day here soon, we'll, uh, we'll also be an owner operator and part of your association in Texas. Just haven't found a park yet that we I haven't uh, found it. That Competition is tough. It's tough. <laughs> it is tough. tough. I, get, I get questions all the time. We go to our little events and one of the, one of the speakers will ask, you know, how many people here own parks and a bunch of hands go up. How many people are looking to buy more parks? Even yeah. More hands go up. How yeah. many people are here trying to sell their park? No hands go up. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. So anyway, but yeah, you're welcome. Come on and we'd love to have you. And I appreciate the time today. This has been a lot of fun. All right. And your website is texasmha.com, correct, DJ? That's right. Yeah. You can come find out more about us on that. It's yeah, Texas spelled out. So T-E-X-A-S-M-H-A.com. I'm on there. My contact's on there. But yeah, you can give us a call, shoot me an email. And as far as your annual, you mentioned uh, Texaco. I know we have SECO here at the Southeastern Conference. You guys have something very similar in Texas. You had mentioned it in the very beginning. When, when does that take place? It's going to be in it's going to be in February in the Woodlands. It's actually okay. uh, a shameless copy of the of the Seco event. Is it? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I love yeah. Seco. It's next week. I, yeah, yeah, yeah no, it is. We got uh, Caitlin in my office. Will be down there. She does all of our events things and, and a bunch of other stuff. So she's going. She'll be down there. But you know, we we help support that Texaco event. It was actually the brainchild of two of our good members, Sunstone, and then uh, mm-hmm. Mobile Insurance, Kirk, Kirk Kelly, and yeah. then. Wayland Grubbs and Casey Thom kind of put this idea. We're going to put this thing together. They've done it two years in a row in League City. They've moved to the Woodlands for a bigger and better venue because it's grown so much. And we just we just love it and support them and and sponsor. And I show up and talk about whatever they want me to talk about. And uh, <laughs> uh, and it's a great it's a great event. And you know I mean they'll get, they've been getting I mean I, they've been limited out on size, but I mean they'll get 150 at least easy community owners uh, or folks interested and probably be even bigger this year at our convention we just had in Dallas, we had over 360 people show up. Wow. Yeah, that's that's phenomenal. That's fantastic. Well, you'll probably see me there in February. I'm going to even though hopefully by then we'll have a park. Either way, I'm going to come and, uh, and, and join in the fun. <laughs> cool. That'd be great. That'd be great. We'll look forward to seeing meeting you in person. And this has All been right. good. And like I said, if anybody has any other questions or anything, that's what we're here for. So let us know. Okay, great. Thanks, CJ. You take care. All right, you too. Congratulations for taking the necessary steps to achieving massive success through the highly lucrative niche of mobile home park investing. Be sure to visit our website, mobilehomeparkacademy.com, to download your free digital ebook version of the 21 biggest mistakes investors make when buying their first mobile home park and how you can avoid them. And while you're there, be sure to subscribe to our free monthly mobile home park investing newsletter which is jammed full of valuable tips, tricks, and strategies to help you accelerate your path to success as a mobile home park investor. More information about this podcast and its hosts can be found by visiting mobilehomeparkacademy.com.